0: Hello everyone, this is Tom Uren, and I'm here with the Gruck for another Between Two Nerds discussion. G'day Gruck. G'day Tom. Today's episode is brought to you by Run Zero and I have a conversation with Run Zero's security evangelist, Huxley Barbie, about what is even a security evangelist and finding the unknown unknowns out on the channel this week. I'd also like to thank Lawfare, and we're launching a collaboration with Lawfare this week, where some of the Seriously Risky Business content will be cross-posted to Lawfare. So today, Gruck, we're recording on the 2nd of November, and you're, you, you were telling me that this is actually an auspicious or maybe an infamous day in the history of the internet
1: Well, I mean, uh, I'm sure I don't need to mention it to our listeners who are well aware that this is the (laughs) 35th anniversary of the Morris worm. (laughs) Yeah, this is is it, man. 35 years since, I guess, sort of the start of internet security as a thing. So 35 years,
0: what's that make that? 1988. November 2, 1988 is the Morris worm. What was I? I was in year 12 at that time. Yeah, um, and I, was in I did, grade not, school. <laughs> did not know anything about it.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't know that computers existed for me that year. It's one of those years where like, you know, you're young enough to be aware that you had memories, but not necessarily linked to years and events. Like I'm pretty right. sure I remember. I remember I can remember things from that time, but I couldn't tell you which of the memories I have is, is from there. Um, Here's what I find a little bit amazing. Like, on the one hand, 35 years is forever ago. I mean, it's a, it's a long time. But on the other hand, there was 100,000 computers back then, right? Like, they, they were like... <laughs> right. <laughs> there were like no system administrators sort of full-time, I guess, you know? There were no security people full-time. And in 35 years, we've gone from that to... Like a Black Hat conference that you literally cannot attend every session <laughs> right. if you have a year. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess there's probably more volunteers at Black Hat than there were right? computer security professionals in 1988.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's a little bit amazing. And I think like, part of what makes it so amazing is that the methodology Im- embodied in the Morris worm was the same one used by the NotPetya worm somehow that very first worm actually contained, I guess, like the ultimate propagation technique.
0: Right, right, right. right. I guess we should explain actually what did happen with the Morris worm, because I've heard of it.
1: (laughs) Right, okay, so the Morris worm, which at the time I believe was called the internet worm, because they didn't know it was Morris who had done it. So the internet worm, it made a problem for everyone, because it had a bug in how it was developed. So it would propagate from machine to machine, but the check that it had to see if it had already infected this machine failed. So it would just (laughs) launch another copy, right? And so then we get reinfected. And this caused large numbers of machines to just get bogged down because they got reinfected all the time. So that was the bug that made it appear. But so the, the, the way that it propagated was really quite clever. So it did a, a bunch of things. So one of it was that...
0: Um, Hang on, before you, before you launch into that, so I understand that it was actually created by the son of someone who worked at NSA.
1: Right, right. This is one of the things that gets brought up, is that obviously the underground invented buffer overflow attacks... And the fact that the son of a guy who worked at NSA wrote buffer overflow attacks and the Morris Worm is <laughs> pure coincidence of some sort. He was, was clearly far ahead of his time. Yeah, so there was a Morris Senior worked for NSA, and I, I don't remember what world position, but he was like he wasn't like some Joe Schmo. He was like a, a head of a something or reasonably high up. And I believe that Junior was in MIT. It was Harvard or MIT. And then um, after he got convicted, he ended up at MIT, like he ended up teaching there or something. So it it didn't work out that badly for him overall, despite crashing the entire internet.
0: And was um, was it just a jape? Or what was his purpose? Pretty much.
1: So it seems from Exploding the Phone, which is a book that goes into quite a lot of detail on these sort of early hacker things, what they say was that he was excited by the technical challenge doing it because it was like uh, it cracks passwords. So he wrote a password cracker and it like did buffer overflow. So he wrote like a buffer overflow and it checked in like the known local hosts for where it would propagate next. So there'd be um, it'd be like an Etsy hosts file that would say like here are all the things that I know of and he would basically use that to connect locally to the things that were most likely going to have the same username and password pairs that he was cracking. Right, right, right. and so he was able to basically exploit trust relationships, and then when that didn't work, he would fall back to the buffer overflow, and then the buffer overflow would sort of bootstrap him into a new environment where he could then exploit the trust relationships again Right. to propagate out. And, and you were and saying
0: that's the same kind of algorithms? That's, yes,
1: that's pretty much what not did. So people will talk about how it had like eternal blue and that's why it propagated. And that's sort of true, but mostly it was doing uh, passing the hash type attacks. So it would look locally in like the ARP table to see like who was nearby. And then it would use the credentials it had from the machine to log into those boxes and then do the same thing again. Most of the propagation was exploiting trust relationships that it had sort of mined from that host. And then when that failed, it would fall back to other things. Like I think the Morris worm, for example, had like a, a short common password list that it would use to try and brute force into machines as well. And so there's sort of like all of these common techniques chained together, where it would sort of go from the likely to work from trust to likely to work from poor configuration to, all right, we'll just use the, the most brittle option, which is the buffer overflow, which it should work, but there's the, the highest probability of it failing.
0: Right, All right, right. right. and so the point was just to the technical challenge, and so uh, right, Morris St- Junior just launched it off at some point.
1: Yeah, and he uh, he forgot to put a um, I think I think he had a semaphore that didn't work or a mutex lock that didn't work, so it would do this propagation, and then once you'd propagate it to all of your like peers they would propagate back to you. And right. then these new copies would propagate back out to your peers again. It would then come back to you. And so you'd end up with just, you know, hundreds of copies
0: right, all right.
1: running on the same box. These are 1988 machines. These are not your iPhone. Right, right. right. Yeah, and so <laughs> the, whole, the whole
0: internet ground to a halt.
1: <laughs> the internet broke. <laughs>
0: right. So this reminds me of the story from Sammy Kamkar, somehow i came across this very funny story he tells where he created um i think it was a myspace worm and it was entirely mm-hmm. just to get credibility and i think the way it worked is that it it propagated through your myspace friends list it made all their friends your friend as well <laughs> and he he said he deployed it and very quickly he had you know many thousands of friends and then somewhat after that, he had hundreds of thousands of friends. And then sometime after that, the site just stopped working. <laughs> and it seems to me that that's it, the it sort of... It
1: cannot handle that much friendship in the world. That's right.
0: <laughs> and then, um, you know, he switched off his computer and went away. <laughs> and, and many months later, the FBI caught up with him. But it strikes me it... as one of those things that young people do because... There's the intellectual challenge. It seems like a good idea when you've got no conception of time beyond five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Which I guess means I'm too old. Now, the other thing that occurred to me is that I was talking to a Sizo some time ago. And the thing he told me he was most worried about was that kind of worm behavior that was maybe not even necessarily deliberate, but just happened and could cause a tremendous amount of destruction.
1: Yeah, so like I mean, twenty years ago there was like the era of worms and that really freaked out Microsoft, right? So there was the code red, there was Slammer, um, there were a couple of code variants that I don't remember anymore. Slammer, I think, was the the final big one where like the entire worm fit inside one UDP packet, which included right. like the exploit, the propagation. It was quite scary in that. If the packet got through, you were infected. That was it. Like there's no <laughs> There's nothing else to it. And so this was the era where Microsoft really freaked out about security because the worms, they were so big and everyone was impacted. And it really sort of made Microsoft look bad on security. Like that, I think, became their metric of like the top priority bugs that they they focused on were bugs that could be wormable. Like if a bug was high criticality, blah, 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 whatever, but not wormable, it would actually just be lower than something that was a slightly lower criticality, but wormable. Right. Yep, yep. Like that was their criteria for like the worst of the worst. And I think 20 years later, they've mostly been successful. I'm not sure whether that's entirely down to them or the maturation of just the environment, just the way that the world has changed.
0: Yeah. I, I kind of thought that Microsoft has done something. Mm-hmm. But there's also, I think, the world is a bit more diverse, or it feels a bit more diverse. Yeah. It doesn't feel like Microsoft is the sole company that you talk about. And I think mm-hmm. people also think about security a bit more. But then I wonder about things like the recent HTTP2. There's a flaw in the actual protocol mm-hmm. um, that is susceptible to DDoS, which is like it's not the same as Wormable. But, you it's know, pretty bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, think, I guess the point is that mistakes still happen, even though people thinking of those protocols are aware that there's like security implications. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, when it's and a protocol, it doesn't matter if you've got Microsoft or Cisco or Apple or whatever. You know, if you've got different vendors, if they're implementing the protocol correctly. Right. It would that- still happen. Right.
1: Yeah, and, and HTTP2 was, you know, these are smart people, Yeah, right? They're not winging it on, on the back of, like, a, a napkin and, and a few drinks going, you know what would be cool <laughs> in our new protocol? Let's uh, let's just do this. Yeah, like, obviously, mistakes do happen, but I think it's worth looking at the predictions that failed to come to pass. As, as sort of, like, the era of worms was sort of fading a bit. Um, so this is, like, 2010 to maybe 2015. Mm-hmm. All of the predictions were like, there's now going to be uh, worms on mobile phones. Like, because mobile is coming up, and mobile is going to be the new thing. And so, because worms are the big problem, obviously, right, if you take the big problem and the new thing, right. that's the future. And I remember at the time, I was not on board with this. I, d- I didn't think that mobile phones were good for worms. At the time, the connectivity was really bad, so it just wouldn't work very well. Right. But sort of the more interesting thing is that part of the reason that mobile phones are not good for worms is that they're just much harder to hack than computers. Right. Right. Like they're they're much more robust systems than you know a, a Windows NT four. But yeah, like that was that was the code red target was NT four. Right? right. And
0: I mean, the other thing I was thinking is that the industry as a whole's got a lot better at rolling out patches, so. Mm-hmm. I guess in the old days, if you wanted to patch a wormable vulnerability, you needed to distribute, I don't know, yeah. uh, floppy disks, I guess, in the old days. In the old, old days.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, they, they, there used to be like FTP and stuff. Like that would be, but right. like even back then, like Windows didn't push out patches, as I recall. Like they were available if you went and sort them out. It wasn't automatic. Yeah. Same with browsers and stuff like that. You didn't get nagged to restart your browser because it had been updated. That wasn't a thing that happened.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess this has now become the old men screaming at cloud (laughs) episode of BTN. I have a MacBook Air, and it stopped booting. And it turns out that in Canberra, there's a retired motor mechanic who just fixes MacBooks for fun, as a bit of a hobby. As you do. And, um, you know, he gets paid, but the prices he charges are, like, tenfold less than Apple itself would charge. So I took it there, asked me what i do, and I'm like, oh, I write a cybersecurity newsletter. And one of the questions he asked me was, you know, what's the yeah. most secure browser? And also, what's the most secure operating system? And what struck me is that I haven't had those questions for many, many years. And that used yeah. to be the sort of question that I would get, like, all the time.
1: True. Like, that, that used to be a thing, and it, it used to actually matter. Right? Like there used to be like a, a ranking where you could go on like Chrome, Firefox, Safari, in that order, and, and do not use Safari at all. And, and then it would be like, you know, if you're using Chrome, you have to go and you know, turn off these features to make sure that like, it's not automatically downloading and running Java applications for you. You're right. I, not only have I not been asked about that, I haven't thought about that <laughs> in... In just, yeah, forever.
0: So why, do you still think that Chrome is the most secure? Yes. And why is that? Um,
1: okay, so it's got a very fast development speed, and the developers don't have any sense of backwards compatibility for their like, private APIs and their private data structures. So if someone develops an exploit and it will be based on like attacking some particular thing and then using like, some internal structures that need to be allocated and freed to set up the heap. Like Two revisions later, that will no longer work simply because like the size of those structures will have changed <laughs> and like, the API that they're calling won't be there anymore. So that sort of like, fast rolling thing is quite good. Also, there's reporting. So if, if you get attacked... Google hears about it, right, and then right. they will look for that and patch it, right? um, so that like telemetry. that happens. Right. All right, of it, right. They, they've got telemetry that pulls that stuff back in, and they actually do look at it for security bug stuff, uh, not just uh, user experience. And then I would say, like Chrome-based browsers are pretty good, but because they are not Chrome itself, they're always going to be slightly behind the patch curve, I guess. So. They're slightly lower, but not in a way that measurably matters. Right? like it's, it's, they're not six months behind on their patching, you know, like they're a week maybe or something, so it's not it's not a huge deal unless you're like a I don't know an, an Iranian Ayatollah who's being targeted by foreign intelligence services, in which case that sort of gap would be an issue. but if you're right, you know, yeah, if you're not a high value target, then I wouldn't worry about yeah, it. yeah sort of I thing. mean
0: the reason I asked was. That- because it seemed like kind of a microcosm of the reasons why maybe we don't worry about worms so much anymore. Those kind of um, changes, like browsers, are just one example of how the world has changed. And in some way, they're perhaps a pinnacle example in that they're used by so many people and so many people care.
1: Right. I think they've they've replaced sort of Windows as the operating system that you need to worry about. Right,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, my answer to the guy was, oh, I think they're all pretty good. I mean, if you keep yeah. them updated, like for the average person, you probably don't have to worry.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think one of the things that we're touching on here is the cost of attacking something versus the reward of attacking something. It's really changed, right? So I, I remember 20 years ago, if you said that you were asking for $3,000 for a, a Windows Windows exploit for Internet Explorer, people would think that you were insane. No one would, would value that at worth anything but, you know, 25 cents or something like <laughs> that. At the time, the time, it would rate, it, like, it's just, they, they were, yeah, like, a dime a dozen. Just, so
0: there was, there was no equivalent of Zerodium that would pay you
1: No, no, I mean, a dollar or two for it? A- <laughs> <yeah>, Zerodium <laughs> would not have worked back then because it would be like, you know... Why? Why would you charge money for something I could do for free in an afternoon? Like right, it's right. just.
0: So I guess you're saying it's it's inconceivable that a young kid, it, a, a bright young kid, would write a worm that will take down the internet or a social media site anymore.
1: No, no, no. I wouldn't say it's inconceivable. I just think that the amount of knowledge that you would have to acquire mm-hmm. to get to that point means that by the time you could do it, you would probably have other priorities than just <laughs> right, some right, giggles. Right, right. Right. You're super bright. You're super smart. You sit down. You learn how to do buffer overflows. You learn how to do like fuzzing. You learn how to do like this and that. And then, you know, a few years later, you're ready to go. And,
0: <laughs> and you think I, I need to really earn a salary at this point <laughs> rather, <laughs> than, <laughs> rather than just yeah, have I, more friends on social media. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. So I think that that's actually reflected if we look at the last couple of worms that did happen, right? Which is the uh, like the NotPetya, uh, Bad Rabbit, and uh, WannaCry. Because mm-hmm. those are all nation states, right? Those are all state worms. Like that, that took basically the resources of a state, you know, producing something that only propagates for the sake of propagating. Like that's a lot of investment. And it's only worth making that investment if there's a Purpose behind it, some sort of geopolitical, right, right thing. I, I guess not just like KGB did not sit down and say like, you know what, we'll be on, <laughs> like this would be hilarious. Let's put together like this not patchy thing and just like let it loose. That would be hilarious, right? Uh, what
0: didn't they both use? Was Eternal it Eternal Blue? Blue? Yeah, yeah, which was
1: also a nation state. Yeah, developed. exactly. I
0: think <laughs> in a way, I think that to me is the more striking thing that they used a tremendously. By all accounts, very advanced mm-hmm. exploit to propagate. Because I'm less yeah. convinced that, I mean, like, well, Sammy and Morris both wrote a worm without actually intending right, to write a worm. <laughs> 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 or up to a point, I
1: guess. Right. right. I think they, they intended to write a worm, but not necessarily a worm. They intended to write a self-propagating toy. Yeah, yeah, not, that's right. Not a uh, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, to be fair, you're right. Like it's not the the most difficult thing in the world to write. You just need a bit of time, some testing, and like the right tools to help the propagation. I guess and the
0: worms still do exist in the IoT space. So I guess I would call um, Mirai, Mirai, yeah. like a, a, yeah, yeah. A, an example of that, and maybe some of the even some of the nation state ones, like um, Cyclops Blink. Mm-hmm. But they're not in the public consciousness. At right, all, unless right. you're a cybersecurity person.
1: Yeah, and and even then, it's a niche thing because they get used for like DDoS, and that's not a it's not a hot topic, really. It's not super exciting. So yeah, I think you're right. They they do exist, but I don't think they're. It's not the same. It's no Morris worm. <laughs> that's right.
0: <laughs> the the era of the internet destroying worm. Are you calling it? Is it over?
1: It's over. That's it. End of an era.
0: Up. thanks a lot Brad.
1: <laughs> thanks a lot Tom